0: superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.
1: No one makes it alone in this life. We all need people to say yes, to support us, and to back us. But there is a reason why some people can get others to believe in them, to invest in them, while others cannot. And that reason has little to do with talent, connections, experience, pedigree, or even a perfect business plan. Backable people seem to have a secret quality that inspires others to take action and take a chance on them and their potential. So what is this it factor and can it be learned? This is a crucial question. It is more important than ever to be backable in a world that is speeding up. It is more important than ever to not get left behind, especially in a time where millions will be re-entering the workforce or changing their career and life direction after the pandemic. My guest today has an answer to this question. Sunil Gupta teaches innovation at Harvard University and is the author of the book, Backable, the surprising truth behind what makes people take a chance on you. Sunil is also the founder of telemedicine startup, Rise, and his ideas have been backed by firms like Raylock and Google Ventures. And he himself has invested in startups, including Airbnb, Calm, and SpaceX. Sunil also serves as the emissary for gross national happiness between the United States and the Kingdom of Bhutan. Sunil, thank you for making time to be on the Superhumanized podcast today. It's great to have you.
0: Ariana, it's a privilege. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Sunil, before we jump into your book, Backable, and the insights you share there, I would like our audience to learn a little bit more about your background. You describe your journey as going from being the face of failure of the New York Times to being named the face of innovation by the New York Stock Exchange Magazine from being rejected by every single investor you pitched to uh, to raising millions of dollars. How did you get it where you're today? What were the experiences, the challenges, and also the failures that were really crucial to your growth?
0: Yeah, uh, well, you know, I started my career actually as a writer. I spent uh, most of 2004 working for the Democratic National Committee. And so 2004 was a really interesting time because if, if you remember or recall anything about that convention, uh, you know, there was, a, there was a very special keynote that was given at that convention by someone who not a lot of people knew, but after he finished his speech, everybody knew who he was. And that was Barack Obama. And I got to watch that speech from backstage And it was one of those moments where I thought to myself, wow, like that is the power of a backable moment. Um, And we can come back to that because I, after digging back into that story, I began to realize that, you know, these people who are backable, who seem naturally gifted, often are the product of lots and lots of growth. Even in the case of Barack Obama, if you rewind the clock four years earlier, he had run for Congress. And he had lost, right? Not, he didn't run for Senate. He didn't run for president. He ran for Congress and he lost, and he lost big. And that always sort of stuck with me, but what stuck with me even more, and it comes back to your question about the growth in my own career, is that if people described him during that campaign in 2000 as boring, they described him as uninspiring. Mm. And, you know, there was a reporter that actually followed his campaign, a guy named Ted McClelland, who said that Barack Obama is so dry that he sucks the air right out of the room. That's literally the quote that, that this reporter had about Barack Obama. And then four years later, he turns into this bastion of hope and of charisma and of energy. And it really stuck with me that these people that we see as inspiring and almost naturally gifted, their stories typically didn't begin that way. And mine didn't either. As you say, you know I was, I was out there as an entrepreneur trying to pitch my company. It was a service called Rise, and I know you're really into human performance and health. And what I was trying to do was build a, was build a one-on-one health coaching service. So you got matched up with a, a nutritionist right over your mobile phone. That's typically a very expensive service. To have right to have the help of a of a personal nutritionist, and I felt like it should be it should be democratized. It should be something that's available to more people. And so I pulled together a prototype of a product. I I pulled together what I thought was a pretty good pitch deck, and I went up and down sort of the road, you know, pitching investors, and I got rejected by everybody. And I thought to myself, what am I doing wrong here? And at the same time, I I was also noticing that there are certain people. What, what I call in the book, backable people mm-hmm. who tend to have this mysterious it quality about them. When they get into a room, we tend to want to take a chance on them. Even when they don't have the right track record, even if they don't have a fully baked idea, even if they're not the obvious choice, we, we still are, feel very compelled to want to get behind them, to really just bet on them. And I wanted to understand what is this it quality and could it be learned? And that's what started this journey.
1: So what I love about your book is that you really give hands-on advice and tools that you share. And it's not just meant for CEOs or celebrities, but for everyone who wants to up their game and get people to take a chance on them. Uh, And I mentioned it in the introduction, you know, in the United States alone, 20 million people lost their jobs in 2020. What does it mean to be backable? What is this it quality?
0: Well, you know, I I think the the equality is a combination of things, and that's really what I've been after over the past five years. Could you take something that's really mysterious? And like you say, it's not just for celebrities, it's not just for CEOs, it's for all of us. What are the qualities that we can all learn? So what I did was I, I started to study people from a wide range of backgrounds, from Oscar winning filmmakers, to Michelin star chefs, to military leaders, to iconic founders, and started to kind of rewind the clock so before they were confident people, before they were backable, right, wh- where were they before? And what I saw was a pattern of rejection, of mm-hmm. failure, of setbacks, right? But along the way, there were a series of qualities that they tended to adopt. And what I, what I try to do with this book, Ariana, is I, I try to take any of the qualities that were obvious and sort of put them and put them in the trash <laughs> because we, we don't want, I mean, look, we, we, we all know that there's some obvious things out there. Like for example, if you're not a trustworthy person, you can't be backable, right? But I'm not going to write a chapter on that because we already know that, but there, were, there turned out to be a series of surprising qualities, things I was surprised about. So for example, one of the things I expected I would find when I was writing this book is I thought that backable people were all going to have a certain style of communication, they were going to make use of eye contact and hand gestures and pacing uh, to make their case. I found that to not be the case. You certainly have some backable people who are charismatic and, and they're outgoing and gregarious, but then you have others that are, that are much more shy and quiet and introverted. I mean, and if you want an example of that, go look up the number one most popular TED talk of all time, and what you'll find it might surprise you. It's a very un-TED-like Presentation. It's a guy named Sir Ken Robinson, and he's got sort of a hand in his pocket. He's got a bit of a slouch. He sort of meanders off script and then back on and then back off and back on. But it's a very, very powerful talk. And and so what I realized over time is that it's not charisma that makes someone convincing, it's conviction. Backable people take the time to convince themselves first. And then they let that conviction shine through whatever style it is that feels most natural to them. That's why in the book, we really get down into the details of like, what does it take to build conviction?
1: Yes, and that is such a crucial, crucial uh, topic. I think most people launch into new ideas and projects without having built their own conviction first. And In your book, you also mentioned something that you call the incubation period, you know, really suggesting everybody take a good amount of time please explain to us why this is so important
0: yeah i mean i think we've all sort of been in this situation tell me if you have ariana where 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 you are with some friends or maybe you're with some colleagues collaborators and a moment of inspiration hits you right an idea a new idea and you're so excited about it that you share it in that moment you're like oh my gosh you guys have to stop what you're doing listen to this and then you share it but the response that you get from everybody else does not even come close to the energy and excitement that you have within you. People are kind of like, huh, that's, that's, that's kind of interesting. It's almost like in that moment, you're like, oh no, but you don't get it. You don't get it. And, and what tends to happen in those moments is that we put the idea in a mental drawer and then we sort of walk away. It's a deflating, emotionally draining experience. So what i found that backable people tend to do is they tend to have that one moment of awareness before they blurt out the idea. And in that one moment of awareness, they think to themselves, is this an idea that I have high conviction for? And if the answer is yes, then by all means, blurt mm-hmm. it out because there's no time like the present. But if the answer is no, it's more of a chocolate M&M, not a peanut M&M, or if you squeeze it, it'll crack, right? If, if it's low lower conviction backable people tend to take that sort of they they resist the temptation to share in that moment so that they can give themselves this incubation time mm-hmm. they'll go back to their desk they'll go back to a quiet space they'll use tools and techniques that we talk about in the book to start actually building this conviction my favorite tool is is simply a piece of paper like literally pulling out a fresh sheet of sheet of paper and starting to write about my idea. And when I'm writing about my idea, I like to keep a couple of principles in mind. The first is that you know when you're writing right. your idea out, try to separate out your writer from your editor. Our writer and our editor are two different people. They're two different personalities. So if you're writing and editing at the same time, then you're gonna kind of limit the creative possibilities that can come down on that piece of paper. So just allow yourself to write freeform. I've got this idea and just dump it out. Like don't edit it all, just dump it out. That's number one. Number two is that it's, it's important when you're writing as well to spend some time steering into the objections of the idea. So after you've dumped it down on paper, put on the critic hat, put on the hat of somebody who's going to start poking holes in your ideas and start to ask yourself, what are the top two to three objections that someone might have for this idea. The reason this is important is because we don't build conviction simply by pointing to the positives. We build conviction also by neutralizing the negatives. And if you can think about the objections yourself, then you may not have perfect answers, but you'll be much better prepared to have a back and forth with somebody inside a room or through Zoom or whatever it is about your idea. The third thing is really fall in love with the problem but don't necessarily fall in love with the solution. So when you have an idea, right? there's something that that triggered you to think that this is important. And what triggered you to think it's important is, is the problem itself that you're trying to solve. But the solution, you should keep flexible. So if you're writing on this piece of paper and all of a sudden another possibility comes up, give yourself the flexibility to pivot, give yourself the flexibility to move to that and explore that as well. Because oftentimes what happens is we come up with a problem and a solution. We get married to the solution right away. And we, we sort of put blinders up to real possibilities that come up in the creative process. And I think that limits us. So those are just some of the ideas on how to build conviction, which is one of the qualities of backable people.
1: Those are really valuable insights you're uh, sharing, Sunil, and I, I have found it fascinating, especially what you just mentioned, the steering into the objections. Um, it's because the, the natural instinct would be like, oh, let's not even talk about the things that are problematic. But the point is, I mean, in my experience also, whenever you pitch to people, they will definitely get to what the potential problems can be. And what you described in your book is that by taking that head on, uh, uh, not only do you convince people, but you also get their attention. You know, all these people, especially if you, you know, if you're pitching to a bunch of venture capitalists and their eyes blaze over, over the first few minutes, yeah. if you go lead into um, your presentation like that, this is something you mentioned in your book, you, you literally, you have them.
0: Exactly. Because, I, because, you know, ultimately, whenever someone has an objection on their mind, you have an idea, but they have an objection. They're not really listening to you mm-hmm. until you address that objection objections tend to nag at us while they might be looking at you and they might be pretending like they're listening. They're not fully there. But if you can steer into those objections and do it sooner rather than later, then again, you may not have the perfect answer, but a couple of things happen. One is that it's not nagging at them anymore and they can tune into the stronger parts of your pitch. Two is that you win a lot of credibility with people. When you are the one who says, look, here are a couple things that I think are probably on your mind, and I want to talk about those very openly as well. And then we can get to some of the other stuff that that I want to talk about. I think that that can be a very powerful, backable moment. Superhumanize.
1: It shows, in a sense, that you care, and it opens this up to a dialogue. Another important point you make in your book is that you take a pitch from a monologue to actually a dialogue, and then you've got people invested in your idea already intellectually, and that can make make the difference between getting funded or not. Something else that you just mentioned a few minutes ago is the, you know, the taking the time to incubate. So you really make this idea your own and you feel safe and secure with it. So that's one really important thing to do. Something else, though, is the, um, I think it's a balance to navigate between that and the I'm not ready. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of us know this. We have great ideas, but we always feel like, ah, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. And then these ideas basically just die inside of ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's such a good point. I mean, I think that was the other, that was the flip side to backable people, which is that you can hold on to your idea forever and you'll never get it out there. And I I think one tool that I found that backable people tend to use is they tell, they tend to sort of put external pressure on themselves to get the Mm -hmm. idea out there. So they give themselves enough of the incubation time, but then they also set some sort of deadline some sort of limiting factor. So for example, you know, one of my one one moment from the book that I love is was with Lady Gaga when she was, when she was, you know, really trying to make it as a singer. And what had happened is that Def Jam Records had dumped her and she was living on her grandmother's couch. She had no money. And her father basically said, look, I'm going to give you one year to figure out a way to make this work, but let's make a deal. If after one year, This is, you're not able to find something else. I want you to go back to college. And that was the deal that, that, that Lady Gaga and her father made. And what a lot of people around her, including the producers that ended up betting on her say is that, that, that arrangement really pulled her into focus It it gave her that, it gave her that sense of urgency, you know, so there is a push pull of incubating your idea, but also having some deadline out there, having some limiting factor, because I think that when we constrain ourselves that way, we can actually, we can actually become more creative and it it adds some sense of healthy urgency. So for example, one thing that you might want to do, if you have an idea is you might, you might want to say to a friend, Hey, four weeks from now, I want to pitch you on a new idea. And I'm not going to tell you anything about it right now. No preview, nothing. But four weeks from now, I want to pitch you on an idea. Can we put something on the calendar today for four weeks from now? Now you have something. Now you have some sort of deadline in your mind of like, look, I've got to to incubate this thing. So giving yourself the time, but also creating some sort of end date, I think is really important.
1: Absolutely. Otherwise you can just get lost and ruminating on these things and they zap so much energy and life out of you and you never give birth. So in your book, you also emphasize something that really fascinated me, the four C's. Mm -hmm. Can you explain the concept and why it is so important?
0: The reason it reached me is because a couple of years ago, I started to, to do some work with the kingdom of Bhutan. And when I traveled out there, I had a chance to spend time with the research team that that comes up with the metric that they run their country by, which is called gross national happiness. So while, as you know, most, most countries in the world measure themselves based on economic growth, may measure themselves based on gross domestic product, the kingdom of Bhutan, they believe that that's important, but they believe that that's part of something larger that they that they ultimately refer to as our people's happiness, gross national happiness. And I was so fascinated by that, that I had so many questions because they've been at it now for over five decades and they've learned a tremendous amount from having this system in place. And so when I had a chance to spend time with some of the people that run this metric, I asked them, is there one question that you can ask when you're traveling town to town and and surveying people and interviewing people? Is there one question you can ask to really get a sense quickly of someone's level of happiness? Mm -hmm. And they said, as a matter of fact, there is. And the question that we can ask is, if you were in trouble right now, who could you call and know with 100% certainty that that person would be there for you? They believe that the answer to that question is a a huge determiner of happiness, but there's a twist. And the twist was, who can call you and know with 100% certainty you will be there for them? So who's on your list? And whose list are you on? It's not a line, but it's it's a circle. And I think ultimately as social beings, it's community that makes us thrive. It's our, it's our circle. And, that, and I think that's true in life. And I also think that's true in, in our professional work as well. And I found that with backable people, they tended to have a circle of people around them as well. A circle of people they could go to with their ideas, a circle of people they could go to for difficult moments, to prepare for presentations, to prepare for career changes, And as it turns out, as I started to examine these circles, I noticed a pattern. And the pattern was that they seem to have the same four types of personalities in these circle, four different types of personalities played usually by different people. Mm -hmm. So the first personality, and I call these the four C's, the first personality is is your collaborator. Your collaborator so this is someone who when you're when you're sharing an idea with you almost feel like you're in a musical jam session he or she is building on top of your ideas you're really sort of coming together you're building you're building the idea together that's your collaborator the, the second is your coach so the coach is different than your collaborator because while your collaborator is trying to figure out if your idea makes sense for a market or for a company or for a team your coach is really trying to figure out if this idea makes sense for you. Like, is this something that fits you? Are you going to want to work on this? Because look, whenever you're introducing something new, change is hard. You're going to be on the opposite side of doubt and and rejection and failure. And so you got to have enough emotional juice in the tank to run with something. And you can only have that if an idea really makes you tick. And your coach is the person who's really going to be honest with you about like, look, I think that's a great idea for someone else but it may not be necessarily a great idea for you. My, my wife tells me this all the time. I think that this should exist. And she'd be like, it's a great idea, but I I don't think that that's going to make you like one month in, you're going to get bored working on that. You need a coach for, for that reason. The third is your cheerleader. And you know it may sound cheesy, but we all need that one person who we can rely on. We just know, no matter what, when we make a phone call with this person, We're going to leave that phone call just a little bit more confident. Like they're going to just give us a little bit of that extra oomph that we need. Right. And it's very important. You know, one of the people I studied for the book is this woman, Ellen Levy, who Silicon uh, Fast Company magazine named uh, Silicon Valley's most connected woman. So, I mean, I'm talking, you know, Fortune 500 CEOs, members of Congress in her Rolodex. But I asked her, who do you call before you walk into a room? And she's like, "That's that's easy. I call my mom." So your cheerleader. The fourth C, I think, is the least appreciated and potentially the most important. <laughs> which I initially called your critic, but now I call it your cheddar. And the reason that I call this person your cheddar is because if you've ever watched the movie Eight Mile with Eminem, which I love, I you know I'm based outside of Detroit, a huge Eminem fan. Cheddar, you know, Eminem in the, in the movie is surrounded by a circle of friends who are constantly sort of building him up, but there's one friend named Cheddar, who's kind of always kind of poking holes in his ideas. But we, what we realize throughout the film is that it's, it's actually Cheddar that gets Eminem ready for the stage. And I think that's true in our lives as well. We all have this sort of somewhat annoying person in our lives who's kind of poking holes but And, our, and sometimes our, you know, our temptation is to push that person away. Mm-hmm. But as it turns out, it is that person that really gets us ready for our stage because they point out these blind spots that inevitably are going to end up coming up inside a room at some point. And if we know that cheddar, if you have somebody who ultimately has your best intentions at heart, but is willing to give it to you straight, pull that person in, don't, don't push them out.
1: Yes. And that for me was also the, from all these great insights with the four different types of people, but that was the most valuable for me because just like you said, it's pretty natural to push the people away instead of really listening to them. And another thing aside from them pointing out our blind spot I have found is it's also very valuable when you have somebody who maybe doesn't get it but confers their disagreement with you. And then you stand up for your idea, for your conviction. You actually practice that before you go where you really want to pitch your idea or your endeavor. And that in itself is very valuable
0: too. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, these, these pitches or the interviews, they're never monologues, right? Mm-hmm. They're never monologues. They're, they're a series that's a series of back and forth, right? And, and typically we don't win people over by simply you know, making a case and then walking out of a room, right? We don't, we don't, we don't sort of say what we need to say and then leave. No, we say what we need to say and then and then we open up. It's Q and A, it's discussion, and and those are the moments that tend to help us win people over. Very, very seldomly does it happen in that in that initial kind of presentation.
1: No, it's all about building this human connection. Yes, and uh, one of the chapters of your book, you also emphasize the importance of casting a central character and how crucial it is to master the art of storytelling. Can you lay that out for us and share why this is so, so vital?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I think that as human beings, we are we are attracted to I think stories. And that's not new. I think we all know that. Um, but oftentimes what ends up happening, especially in a business, in professional context, we tend to sort of focus more on the numbers and the data and we sort of hide, we hide the stories. And I wanted to get a little bit more specific in the book about, okay, well, why do we do that? And also what does it take to tell a great, a great, great story? And so one of the experiences I had that kind of led me to this is I was pitching uh, Tim Ferriss, author and podcaster on my, on my idea. I was pitching him though, as an investor because he invests in ideas and he he focuses somewhat on healthcare. And so I was pitching him my, I gave him my standard pitch and I would say that the first 80% of my pitch was, was focused on the numbers. It was focused Mm -hmm. on the market. So, you know, again, we were helping people get into better physical shape. And so I talked about the rising rates of obesity, the rising rate of diabetes and hypertension, and how big this market really was, and then at the very end, I told the story of my father, and the story of my father is that you know when he was in his forties, he had a triple bypass surgery. It was it was an emergency surgery, and I remember I was about nine years old. And I remember uh, going to the hospital and just seeing my father. It looked like he aged like thirty years in a period of a day. And, uh, and when we left the hospital, I remember they gave us a piece of paper and that piece of paper, you know, was basically how to live your life now. And it it said things like eat broccoli, eat Brussels sprouts. You know, we we're an Indian family. We, We ate chicken curry. Like we ate, we ate dal and, 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 and it was like, I didn't know what to do with that piece of paper. And I don't think my mom did either, but lucky for us insurance kicked in and we were able to afford for a little while a a nutritionist who was able to come in and customize our lifestyle to make sure that it fit our preferences but also was going to work in the long term and that turned my dad's life around it saved his life and i told tim ferriss this story and he was like why did you tuck that to the very very end like that's not a footnote you should f- You should bring that to the very front of your presentation. You should tell that story first, and then you should talk about all the numbers and and, and facts and figures. And so I did. I began with that story, and then I talked about the fact that there are millions of people out there that are going through their own version of my father's story. And when I made that simple change, when I flipped it to the story first, it ended up completely changing the way that investors responded to the idea. Because again, as human beings, we are attracted to stories, not numbers. But I think numbers are important. I'm not saying they aren't. You know, Stories tend to sort of bring us in, but then the numbers and the data tend to keep us there. And it's important to have that ordering right, not the other way around. Superhumanize. The one thing is
1: establishing human connection by storytelling. I mean, this is as old as humanity. We share stories, our ancestors shared stories around the fires. Yeah. And the other thing is we talked about steering into objections. However, there's other things that motivate or demotivate people to invest into your idea. And that's just all kinds of fears that come up. And in your book, you talk about explaining or making very, very clear why your idea is inevitable. What does that mean and how can one do that?
0: Yeah, you know, one one thing I think we that's important to realize for anyone who considers themselves to be creative or an entrepreneur is that whenever you're trying to create change, whenever you're trying to get someone to buy into something new, one thing to keep in mind is that as human beings, the pain of making a bad decision is twice as powerful as the pleasure of making the right decision. Daniel Kahneman, who's this, you know, Nobel Prize winning economist, is the one that showed us this through a theory called loss aversion. Pain of making the bad decision, much more powerful than, than the pleasure of making the right one. So again, that means that we can't just we can't just point to the positives. We have to neutralize the negatives. And we have to understand how to sort of play into that dynamic. And one of the ways that one of the mistakes I think we make is when we ignore that and we just talk about how new our ideas. is how new and exciting our idea is. Well, it, it, it's great to be new. It's great to be exciting, but what neutralizes the fear is not new and exciting. What neutralizes fear is the idea is inevitable. If the idea we know is going to end up happening. So what we find is that great people, backable people who pitch very well, tend to sort of take almost an anthropo- like an anthropological view of the world. They almost put on this anthropologist hat and they think to themselves like where is the world inevitably heading right now? Where like where are we going to be 5 to 10 years from now? Irrespective of my idea. Like put my idea aside for a moment. Where is the world headed? And if we can get a view of that, right? That the person on the other side of the table can agree with. Then we can fit my idea into that framework, right? Then we can start to talk about how like, well, inevitably this is going to be a thing. So for example, with my company, with Rise, again, I went in, in the beginning and I, and I was talking about how new and exciting it was that you could connect to a nutritionist right over your mobile phone, right? Isn't that cool? Isn't that exciting? Isn't that new? People are like, huh, yeah, that is pretty interesting. What ended up lifting this to the higher level, what ended up really being the compelling pitch was when I said, look... Patients and physicians and medical providers are now starting to interact over a mobile phone in ways that they never had before. This is a trend that is starting right now, and it's only hockey sticking. And what you can imagine is that five to 10 years from now, we are going to be communicating with our, with our medical providers, not in person, but I think a lot of it is going to happen via your mobile phone. And a lot of it is going to be happening asynchronously through things like SMS and photos, because, because that's just the way the world is headed. We want to get ahead of that through this app, through this app that we built called Rise, which lets you communicate with the medical provider right now, a nutritionist through SMS, through photos. We're not inventing the way the world, we think the, way the world should go. The world is headed in this direction. And we're just, we want to get there first. We want to get there in a way that that's really well designed. That ended up being a much more convincing pitch to people because again, I'm not saying, hey, I think the world should go this way. I'm saying the world's headed this way and we mm. want to get ahead of it. And and so the pushback, Ariana, that I get to this idea sometimes is that people will say, yeah, but what about like Steve Jobs, yeah. right? Within well, Steve Jobs basically changed the trajectory of the way the world was headed, right? And Steve Jobs, you know, is is often, you know, there, there's there's this famous thing where he quotes Henry Ford, who says like, if I asked people if they wanted a faster horse, or, or what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse, right? Mm-hmm. But, the, but the reality is that if you would have gone one step deeper than that, and you would have said, well, why do you want a faster horse? They would have said, well, because I want to get from point A to point B faster, right? And inevitably, they were going to want to go faster than that, and then faster than that, and faster than that. And eventually, that was going to exceed the capability of a horse. So in a lot of ways, what Henry Ford was doing was going towards what was already inevitable by building, you know, by, by, by investing in automobiles. And if you listen to the way that Steve Jobs talks in 2007, when he released the iPhone, he actually didn't say like, I think this is the way the world should go. He actually said in his speech, he quoted Wayne Gretzky, who said, I'm simply skating to where the puck is already going.
1: Right. And that is not just the hallmark of a visionary, but a leader who can connect the dots and supply a demand with something that, you know, doesn't already exist. What are, in your mind, the key traits of an effective leader and how can we optimize our leadership skills?
0: I mean, I think a good leader is is someone who is able to, I think, bring in i think a lot of people flip them from outsiders into insiders you know make people feel like the direction the vision is is also their direction is also their vision it's what they want as well and i think where leaders get it wrong is when you know they sort of adopt the hero complex or it's like there's a problem, and I'm here to save the day, and I've got the idea, and you rally around me. I find that that can that can have some short-term effectiveness, but in the long term, the leaders that that I think tend to be great are the ones that flip outsiders into insiders. You know, in, in the in the 1940s, Betty Crocker introduced instant cake mix to the market, and they thought this thing was going to go nuts. Like they thought it was going to be a huge, sensational success. And they were really surprised when instant cake mix wasn't selling and they, and they were trying to figure out why. And so they hired this guy named Ernest Dekta to go out into the field and interview all of these homemakers to understand why, why aren't you buying instant cake mix? And what he came back with was fascinating. He said that you have made the process of making a cake too easy, too simple, because you you have removed the customer from the creative process. Mm -hmm. And so Dykta's recommendation was, why don't you remove one ingredient and just see what happens? And so they did, they removed the egg. And so now as a customer, you had to crack and mix in your own fresh egg into the mix and sales take off, skyrocket. Because now customers really felt like they were part of the creative process. This has continued to, to sort of prove out over and over again. Researchers now call this the IKEA effect. And the Ikea effect basically tells us that we place up to five times the amount of value on something that we help build than something that we simply buy off the shelf. So there are a lot of people with poorly made futons and furniture out there that they'll never get rid of because <laughs> they built it They built it themselves, right? So what does this have anything to do with your question about leadership? Well, I think we, we, we tend to think of sort of building things, creating and leading things as a two-step formula. You come up with a great idea. And then you execute on it really well. But I think leadership and creativity, there's a hidden step in between. And it's in that hidden secret step that we flip outsiders to insiders. We begin, begin to, to pull people into the process early enough so that they feel like it's their idea too. These are early employees. These are early partners, collaborators, investors, where when we show up to execution phase, we show up together where they feel just as invested in the idea as we do because they feel ownership of it. They feel like they were able to crack their egg into the mix and they feel ownership of the cake. And I I believe, Ariana, you can trace every successful company, nonprofit, political movement, back to leaders who followed this hidden step.
1: Yes, that's a really, really great insight. You become part of the team, part of the tribe. You are emotionally invested, and sometimes even physically crack the egg. Something else I'd like to ask you, we're living through unprecedented times right now, and 2021 is shaping up to be not only a really intense year, but potentially also a year full of opportunity. In your opinion, what is the most important business skill of
0: 2021? Mm. Well, I, I think it's creativity. More than more. I think I think twenty twenty one is the year of creative projects. And what I find is that you know people who have had these projects sort of tucked away are now starting to say, Hey, this is my time. This is my moment. That doesn't necessarily mean, by the way, that I'm gonna go start a company. It could be, but maybe it's a creative art project. Maybe it's a maybe it's a design that you've you've had in mind, maybe it's a new idea inside the company that you work at. But but ultimately Th- these ideas that we've had tucked away, I think the pandemic has been a reminder that life is brief and that we cannot wait for change. Right? We can't wait. It, it, and I also think that it for for those of us who have been lucky enough, it has given some of us some more space. Not all of us. Some people have less time, not more. But some people have more time, at least a little bit more time to think. And you know, I what I've found is that people tend to do one of two things with that extra window of time. Some people are just jamming it in with more meetings, right? There are more meetings. They're checking their phone more. They're not really making use of it. But I have found, and it's really inspiring to see that other people are saying, well, if I have that extra half hour, 45 minutes in the mornings, I'm not commuting to work anymore. Let me take that and sit down and actually protect that time. Let me, let me actually have a cup of coffee. Then let me let me go into deep work mode where I can actually start to creatively kind of brainstorm things before the noise of my day sets in. And I think as a result of that second group, we're going to see so many new ventures, so many new creative ideas. I mean, you've probably heard the comparison before of the roaring 20s from the 1900s, which followed you know, the, the flu epidemic. I, I think that there's a real possibility that we're going to see this hockey stick of, of, of lots and lots of creative ideas and the arts and, the, and, and people are going to dance. And I think that people are going to introduce new ideas into the world. Not, I'm really excited about that.
1: I'm right there with you, Sunil. I also think that we may be on the brink of really, really exciting times. And something that really also touched me in your book is the idea that you convey. The truth that you convey is that not tapping into our genius and not getting our ideas out into the world and getting backed can come at a huge cost to ourselves, to our own well-being, to society, but even to human life. And there is a particular event that you speak about with regards to this and the cost of human life potentially, and that's the Space Shuttle Challenger and the NASA engineer, Bob Abeling. Would mm. you recount, retell that to us? Because yeah. I found that was so compelling
0: yeah you know that story it really pu- it pulls in my heart as well. and I think the 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 thing about it is that there are people out there. One of the questions I get asked all the time is, well, what about the people who don't have the best intentions? Can they be backable? And the answer is yes, they can be, and that's unfortunate. That's not a good thing, right? Mm-hmm. There are a lot of low integrity people out there who are plenty backable. They come off as very, very convicted. They come off with all the skills that I talk about in this book. But on the flip side, you have people like Bob Ebeling, who we'll talk about in a moment, who are highly creative, you know, have high integrity, their heart is in the right place, and yet they don't know how to take the ideas inside of them and persuade other people to believe in them. And and those are the people that I I wrote this book for. In the case of Bob Ebeling, when the Space Shuttle Challenger was, was going up in the 1980s, Bob Ebeling was working at NASA. And he knew he was looking at the data before the Challenger went up. And he said to himself, something's wrong here. Like if this, if this shuttle is allowed to launch, I think something bad is gonna happen. And so he assembles his data, he calls a meeting, he gets all of his colleagues in a room and his, and his superiors in the room. And he says, here's why I think we should delay the launch. And he was dismissed. Space Shuttle Challenger goes up the next morning and it disintegrates within 90 seconds, killing every astronaut on board, including Krista McAuliffe, who would have been the first teacher to go to space. And the sad thing, I mean, I mean, that's sad enough. But Bob Ebeling, for the rest of his life, blamed himself for it happening. One of the last interviews he gave was to NPR, and you know, some of his words were, "God should not have chosen me for that job because I had all the data." I had all, I had everything that I needed, but I I wasn't able to persuade them. And so he blamed himself. And it's people like Bob Ebeling that I wrote this book for. Superhumanize.
1: Thank you for retelling that story for us. I just really wanted to make a point here how important it is to get our ideas out and also to know how to do this effectively. In the conclusion of your book, you ended with a call to action. You are asking that we all play the game of now, which I love. What yeah. does that mean?
0: Yeah. You know, um, the, 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 the root inspiring story of this book, the, the, my favorite story is about a woman named Demyanti Hingarani who time magazine named a pioneer and she was a refugee. She grew up with no water, no running water, no electricity, but somehow came up with this impossible dream that one day she was going to immigrate to the United States and she was going to become an engineer with Ford Motor Company. That was her dream. And her parents got behind it. They saved every penny they had. And eventually she got on a boat. She got a scholarship to Oklahoma State University. And the day after she graduates, she goes to Detroit, Michigan, where she applies for this job, and she actually gets herself into a into a room with a hiring manager. But there was a big problem. This was the 1960s, and Ford Motor Company had thousands of engineers working for it, but not a single one of them was a woman. Mm-hmm. And so the hiring manager looks at her, and he looks at her her resume and her application. He says, "I'm sorry, we don't have any we don't have any women working here as as engineers right now." And so it's this really deflating moment and she gets up and she picks up her resume and puts her purse around her shoulder. And she begins to walk around, walk out of the room. And then in this almost like last moment, she turns around, she looks his hiring manager in the eyes and she tells him her story about all the struggle that, that had to, had to happen in order for her to get to this country in order for her to get to Detroit, to get to this very room. And then she says to him, look, if you don't have any female engineers here, then do yourself a favor and hire me now. And that was the moment that a middle manager from suburban Michigan decides to take a chance on a refugee from the other side of the world. And Dementi Hingarani becomes Ford Motor Company's first female engineer. And, I, and, I, and, I, and that story is so meaningful to me because it changed things for immigrants. It changed things for women in the workforce. And it also changed things for me. Because Namiyanti Hingarani is my mom.
1: It's a beautiful, beautiful story. This uh, being backable actually runs in your family from your mother, your brother, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, yourself, and now you're sharing these amazing tools and. Insights with the world. I cannot recommend your book highly enough. I've already gifted it to a bunch of my friends because I know they'll derive value out of it. And whether you're an entrepreneur, whether it's for your family life, it's just uh, it's it's been really one of the best reads I've I've had in in the in the recent past, and also very helpful for myself. So I'm very grateful to you and also to your mother. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. You know, I try my best to pass down. I mean, you know, I'm never going to be able to do it as well as my mom did. But I I try my best. I've got two daughters now. And one of them is in second grade. And so, you know, she's doing the whole sort of Zoom school thing. But I've, I've taken it upon myself to do a little routine with her every morning. And it goes like this. I ask her, what is the meaning of life? and she says to find your gift and i say well what is the purpose of life and she says to give it away and backable to me is all about how do we how do we give our gift away you know and i think the three words that tend to hold us back from doing that are i'm not ready right? i'm not ready to speak my mind i'm not ready to apply for that job i'm not ready to step into that leadership role but the thing, if there was one thing that I realized writing this book, I've spent five years now, studied hundreds of people. One of the things I realized is that none of them were ready. None of them were. Three friends from design school were not ready to start Airbnb. A, a mid-level talent manager wasn't ready to start SoulCycle. A, a 15-year-old from Stockholm, Sweden wasn't ready to build an environmental movement. But today, Greta Thunberg is Time Magazine's youngest person of the year. Mm-hmm and so there were struggles there were setbacks there were failures along the way but the 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 mantra that i think that they all seem to embrace is that the opposite of success is not failure it's boredom
1: so Absolutely. let's
0: let's do let's do the things that make us come alive and let's inspire good people to come along the way because let me say it if no one has told you like you are you are ready
1: yes and these are words to live by Sunil and you know on our way um, there are certain things that we do that are helpful to us and it's a question I ask every um, person that I have the pleasure to have as a guest on my podcast and that is uh, are there certain practices have there been certain practices in your life that have positively affected you mentally spiritually physically and would you share them with us
0: Sure. Absolutely. And the answer is absolutely yes. I mean, I so during COVID, I I decided to uh, invest a lot in yoga. Um, mm-hmm. I you know I, I'd been I'd been sort of pretty casual about yoga, but what ended up happening was that one of my favorite teachers uh, decided to do an online teacher training, a three hundred hour teacher training, and so I decided to do it. And uh, and you know it was online, but it was over Zoom, so we were together every single day. Um, It was very intense. It was like, you know, it was nine hours a day, six days a week. I decided to do it and it completely, it completely changed me. And I get asked a lot, like, how did it change you? Well, of course, you know, I I feel like I'm in better shape. I feel like I'm, I'm much more present and aware, but the, but, but it's more than that. I think that up until now, I've sort of thought about these different parts of my life in compartments. I've thought about my mental and intellectual in one compartment. I've thought about physical and working out in another compartment. I've thought about spiritual even and emotional in another compartment. And, and I would jump from compartment to compartment. Now, after having gone through that experience, I sort of think of it almost like a four-wheel automobile where you know my mental wheel could spin and the car will move, but it will move pretty slow. But if my mental and physical wheel are spinning, it moves faster. If my mental, physical, and emotional wheels are spinning, even faster. And if the spiritual wheel kicks in, the car is just, it's got that oomph that I think we're all trying to bring to our lives. And for me, I think yoga is the place where all four of those wheels spin. And I, and, and, I, and I do it every morning because now I get to take that feeling off the mat into whatever else it is that I'm doing.
1: That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And I love the analogy of the car and the four wheels. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, people who want to reach you, where can they find you, Sunil?
0: Yeah. Just go to backable.com. So name the book.com and you'll you'll see all my contact information there. You'll see some more stuff about the book and come check it out.
1: Excellent. I'll put all that in the show notes including the links to your social media. Sunil, it's been really a great pleasure. It's such an insightful conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ariana. This has been really great. I appreciate you having me on. Superhumanize. Accelerated Evolution.